Good morning, everyone. A very warm welcome. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute for Government. And welcome to those of you on live stream as well. We're delighted to have here Carolyn Fairburn, director general of the CBI, as you know, has had many roles in media, business, government, regulatory agencies, and has been, as they say, in the thick of it um, in the past uh, couple of years, commenting on business and indeed on Brexit. And we have a lot to talk about this morning. This is a wide-ranging in-conversation. Um, we plan these things sometime in advance, but uh, the timing could, could, not, could not be better. Um, uh, so, Karen, very, very warm welcome for a start. Well, I'm delighted to be here, mm -hmm. Bronwyn. Uh, yeah. Quite a day, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we can't uh, help but start with Brexit. Uh, six months? No surprises. Six yeah. months? Good? Yeah. Bad? Oh, uh, I mean, uh, uh, member reaction this morning from businesses. It will, it will be a brief moment of relief because actually, you know, that real concern that we were hitting the cliff edge this Friday was there. But it would be quickly followed by frustration, exasperation, we're still here, six months will come around extremely quickly. I think members will already be thinking, but that's the run up to Christmas. Um, and how they start, uh, at what they do with their no deal planning. So I'm afraid there'll be no dancing in the streets around this. And I wouldn't expect to see much in the way of ramping down of no deal planning. And so that new deal planning is still very much going on in businesses. Oh, uh, it, it really is. I was with um, one business the other day who talked about the fact he's burning money every day. He literally feels he's, he's lighting a bonfire uh, under, uh, under cash because of stockpiling uh, uh, the warehouse capacity that's needed, um, the preparation that they're needing for delays at borders. Uh, and and that, that is wasted. And I think the fact that we, I, I think we believe that the economy is now one to two percent smaller as a result. Um, I think many uh, commentators uh, believe that, uh, and it has been a real cost to the economy that will continue. Let's back off a bit and just look back over the last couple of years. Mm. Um, and you, have, you know, business started at the beginning, very very keen to make its voice mm. heard with government. How successful do you feel that was? Well, uh, I think it was, there was just a real shock at the beginning. You know, I think when the referendum result uh, uh, hit, um, it was unexpected. Uh, it was very unexpected for business. Uh, and there was you know, a, a tremendous sense of shock. Um, and it took a while for the business voice to get going, I think, after that. But where I think it has been uh, uh, very effective is if you look back to when the transition period was agreed. Um, it seems like you know, dim and distant history now, but actually it was an incredibly important moment uh, about a year and a half ago where uh, business got together, many um, uh, big and small, and said, actually, we need a status quo transition uh, to be able to bridge to, to the future. And actually, both Brussels and Westminster said, uh, no, absolutely, resoundingly, big raspberry. Um, and within eight weeks, it was actually government policy, it was Labour Party policy, and if a deal is agreed, it is what will happen. And I think that was the beginning of the business voice really beginning to come through, talking about, I think, some very simple principles. Frictionless trade, the impact that has on jobs in manufacturing communities, the importance of a deal for services, uh, the importance of regulatory alignment. And I think that sort of the voices of business talking about real people in real communities has grown over time. And so you know, even today, I do sit here and think, we could have gone over the cliff actually. Um, a year ago, I don't believe there was a consensus in Parliament against no deal, and now there is. 
and that is real progress. And what we now need, I think, is for that, that voice to continue to be about real jobs in real communities. Um, and actually what you all have seen us talking about today is we must have political compromise now to get this deal done so that we don't find ourselves in the same situation in six months' time. I'll come on to that deal, but I'm um, uh, surprised uh, and impressed that you put so sunny uh, construction onto the last couple of years because after all, I mean, the Prime Minister took quite early on a stance against mm. the customs union, against the single market, um, and we still have a significant block of the Conservative Party, the party of business supposedly, um, wanting, apparently wanting no deal, a, a, a block within the Parliament. Yes. Doesn't, doesn't this represent, um, uh, you know, at least, uh, you know, if not a failure by the business community to get its voices heard in what should it be its constituency? Um, then um, a loss of interest, uh, perhaps, in the Conservative Party in those arguments? I don't think I really quite see it that way. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not feeling hugely sunny. I don't think I, I want, don't want to come across hugely sunny, but I do think that it, it, because we are still in a mess. I mean, we wake up this morning and we're still uh, in a mess. But I, I do think that um, it is worth you know, logging progress because I think you can learn from it and what has worked in terms of that mm. uh, dialogue um, that we have to have about what business can do for the country and why it matters so much to get this right. Um, and we can all have our own diagnosis of where things went wrong very early on. I do think that it was a really, um, a real missed opportunity to have those red lines play, uh, put in, in the, in, in the mm. sand so early on. And I look back at key moments, and for me there was that moment which started at the Conservative Party conference when Theresa May stood up and talked about them and then confirmed them at, Man in, at Mansion House. Um, and we've been rowing, you know, we've been trying to climb back from that ever mm. since. Mm. Um, and I think we have made some ground. Uh, is it enough? Absolutely not. That's why we are still in a mess. But I, 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 I would say that almost MP by MP, um, constituency by constituency, we've had so many businesses who've got in touch with their MPs, talked about their local plant, the local Haribo plant, the local JLR plant, and talked in real terms. And as I say, I do think that's why you have seen some of the votes go the right way in Parliament over the last few weeks. Not enough. There's still not enough agreement. But we've ruled out, at least for the next six months, a no-deal exit. And that is something I think that is worth uh, um, uh, recognising mm -hmm. and building on. Mm -hmm. um, I absolutely take that point. What do you think the level of understanding of customs union and single <laughs> market is in our first, um, I'm going to say, Parliament? And uh, we, as many in the country, were very struck by the way MPs were having a a seminar, a kind of masterclass on what is a customs union just before one of the key votes a couple of weeks ago. It is. A it, couple it, of weeks ago. A, 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 exactly. What could be learned you know, in, in, in 14 days? And customs union has become almost totemic. Mm. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I was reading uh, a book by, by David Campbell Bannerman that was written a few few years ago about how it'd be very easy to leave the European Union and a, uh, a, a, a forward written by uh, Lord Lamont when customs union isn't even mentioned. I mean, it's not even meant, it's not mentioned the forward. It is not. It is. It, you know, it, it, it has not been a key part of the debate, and um, I think levels of understanding are extremely low. I mean, the number of uh, MPs I still speak to who do think it comes with freedom of movement obligations, that it requires regulatory alignment in totality, uh, and uh, uh, of course it it doesn't. Um, and and there, I think actually your challenge is absolutely fair, Bronwyn. You know, why isn't there? You know, could we have done more to educate? But there has to be a willing, there has to be you know a, a sort of a listening ear on the other side. Mm. Um, the tr and the problem with the customs union debate now, I think it's quite frustrating for, for those of us in business because actually it's quite a kind of 
um, common sense arithmetic equation, is it worth more to the UK to have free trade deals um, uh, around the world um, where you know, you're trading tariffs, or is it worth more to preserve frictionless trade in the European Union? And you can work out those two numbers. And the answer on the first is about 1% to 2% of GDP uplift, and the answer on the second is more like 6 or 7%. And you do that arithmetic. And, um, and when people say to, to us, well, we couldn't have an independent trade policy, one of my answers is, this would be a pillar of an independent trade policy. You know, it's a sovereign choice to, to do that. Um, and so I think we, um, and, and if there's sort of one sort of central, um, and I would almost call it a lie at the heart of, um, of this debate, and I know that's quite strong language, but I do feel very strongly about it, is this idea that you have to choose between doing you know, trading with the European Union and trading globally, and that that's what the customs union debate comes down to. It doesn't. And um, if that becomes, in a sense, the centre of compromise over the next few days and weeks with, between Labour and Tory, um, I do think that we as a business community can help, hopefully, to take some of the heat out of it. Let's go to no deal for the moment. As you said, it's, it's off the menu this yeah. week. Um, but we, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of conditions attached um, uh, to the extension, and we know some Brexiteers are hoping that bad behaviour by the UK under this Prime Minister or another uh, could, could indeed cause us to come out. And of course, as you said, six months from now, the questions uh, come back again. How prepared are your members for No Deal? Um, I think they're not very prepared. I could be absolutely honest, and I think they're not very prepared because they can't be very prepared. I mean, it's one of these really, one of these sort of interesting tricks of language that um, I'm often asked, are businesses ready? And what I would say is, is many of them are, particularly the big companies, are as ready as they can be. But it's mitigation. It, it's, um, it's, it's like, you know, putting up, um, you know, putting down sandbags if you think there's going to be a flood. It doesn't prevent the chaos and the disruption. Uh, and you know, what we know is that even the most ready of our members, and actually uh, only 4% say they're completely ready. 4% uh, say they're completely ready. Um, they um, are prepared for uh, disruption at ports, um, uh, uh, tariff schedules that have been launched, will be launched on a country uh, with only three, you know, very, very minimal notice. Uh, and so I think that they are not ready. And the um, small businesses, frankly, quite rationally, Many have done absolutely nothing at all. Um, as many as 50% of small businesses mm. have done nothing at all. And again, you can say, well, why haven't they? Come on, we've been talking about yeah, this for explain, ages. Explain the, the quite okay. rationally to everyone. Yeah. So the quite rationally is that if you're a small business, for a start, you don't have, and I've spoken to so many, um, they um, are very frank with me, and they say, listen, we don't have a big you know, central department of lots of people who can work all of this out. We're trying to run our business. And often they're small exporters and they are trying to run their business. And what they say to me is, you know, if a no deal, probability of no deal is, um, and they often estimated it at between 10 and 20%, something like that. Um, and the cost to me of preparing for no deal is millions, and even for a small business it quite often is, because they might need to move a, a, a plant or a production line. They say quite rationally, I'm not going to spend that money unless I know that 20% risk has come true. Mm. Um, so this isn't mm. stupidity, this is rational common sense. 
Um, the businesses that have absolutely, I mean, there is one sector I think that is ready, and that's banking. Um, I think the financial services sector um, are ready because, frankly, it's illegal not to be compliant in the event of no deal. And so they have had to do a lot. For many small you, you'd businesses... You'd extend that to insurance as well. Insurance. And, and, and all this, yeah, insurance, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. asset management, uh, yeah. banking, uh, and parts of pharma because yeah. they are heavily regulated. But for yeah. most businesses, this isn't a question of law. This is a question of ras rational risk assessment. So we have huge swathes of our SME community who have done nothing at all. And they still won't do anything at all. So the shock uh, of uh, a no deal, um, frankly, uh, would be absolutely enormous. And uh, you know, there are so many parties, so many sectors of our community saying that, you know, the farmers, the NHS, ourselves, Federation of Small Business. Um, I think people in general believe it, but it still worries me greatly that there are some who don't. How would you react to uh, the emergence of Boris Johnson as Conservative Party leader? Well, I suppose what rings in our ears um, is his famous expletive, um, which uh, you know was. Um, I think that was just an enormous shock to. Uh, I mean, you mentioned it early, earlier on, Bronwyn, that um, uh, the relationship between the Conservative Party and business has, in general, been very good. And actually, I think in general, the relationship between government and business over decades has been very good. We've developed a pro progressive economy um, with um, you know, a strong welfare state, um, good, good base of tax funding, uh, and actually we've been a successful economy with a good partnership. And the idea that you know, a Conservative minister would say that, I think, was deeply shocking. Now, um, he's... he's a, try to explain it, retract it, etc. But I think that there would need to be some real bridge building. Um, I, he has not, I don't believe, talked very much to business. We would be um, saying, you know, come, and, come, and, come and meet our members, come and hear what really matters. Um, and we would, as we've always done, try and build those bridges. But uh, there would be, I think, deep concern amongst the business community. Um, but that said, you know, we have worked with different leaders all the way through uh, the 60-year life of the CBI. Um, you know, we will be the first to be trying to meet him and talk to him about all of this. But to take a few points from the Brexit point of view, I mean, some of the Brexit-supporting um, MPs and, 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 and other supporters would, would say, look, um, single market hasn't been great for uh, the UK in all kinds of ways, uh, even it's been good in, in some other ways, and we've got enormous trade deficit mm. in goods with the, uh, with the EU, which the IMF has just said mm. is, you know, is unsustainable. Mm. Um, what would be your response to that? Um, I think our response to that is that successful trade policy begins at home actually. It begins with having the right competitive environment um, to make goods and services that people want to buy. And actually the structural issues with our trade deficit, um, I would argue, do not stem from our relationship with the single market, which I think is broadly speaking good. It's not, it's not unalloyed good. You know, we, we, um, we, we've done a lot of work over the years on the pros and cons of the regulatory environment in the single market, and we do think it's been overly bureaucratic in some ways, but on balance, the fact it, it creates a frictionless trade environment to 500 million consumers is, is good. The trade balance uh, imbalance, which is serious and structural, um, I think comes from something else. 
it comes from um, actually the fact that we have, I don't think, created enough of an industrial strategy around manufacturing. Um, we have in automotive and aerospace, interestingly, where we have trade surpluses, so we have some areas where we have proven it can be done. But actually, this is far more about how we get our skills base working, how we get real commitments to uh, industrial strategy across yeah. the country. We get firing on all cylinders in parts of the country. Right. That so the, so the, the, it starts yeah. at home. These are homegrown problems. These are so homegrown they, problems. Uh, and the, the numbers are really uh, quite something. I mean, the, 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 it's gone from 4 billion to 94 billion since, since 2001. And so your attention would be on these homegrown problems, nothing to do with the, 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 the EU, uh, in terms of trying to close that trade, trade gap. Um, I wouldn't say completely nothing um, mm. in that I think that being in the European Union, influencing regulatory uh, environments so that they are conducive to competitiveness would, would, would had we stayed, would have needed to continue mm. because I think there is there are areas of heavy-handed uh, regulation. Mm. But on balance, I think no. And actually, um, as evidence for that, I think if you look at our, you know, something we've been quite obsessed by at the CBI is productivity and mm. the fact that we have a productivity mm. gap with uh, our peers in the European Union. Um, we have 20% lower productivity mm. than France and 30% lower than Germany. And that actually is a fundamental driver of our, our trade deficit. Now, the thing that is, um, I think, actually um, a potential real opportunity if we can get Brexit right is that we are seeing a renaissance in manufacturing. It's very interesting. We are seeing record export levels for manufacturers. We are seeing some fantastic tech investment going in at the high end of advanced manufacturing. Um, and we are seeing the renaissance that we've been longing to see coming through. It would be such a shame if that got halted in its tracks by new frictions appearing in our, in our, in our trading model. Mm. Let's come on to Labour. Um, and I want to, I'm very interested in your views mm. of whether mm. what Labour is saying represents a profound challenge to thinking and, and to relations between government and business you've been describing over the past few decades um, or not, and how you would begin to work uh, with with labour, we've yeah. had um, you know a, a set of suggestions already from yeah. John McDonnell, uh, shadow chancellor, um, um, what you might call smaller things like rising the minimum wage, um, uh, getting slightly larger to worker representation on yeah. company boards, obviously the renationalisation proposals, and then what many uh, economists and business people consider the most uh, provocative, um, recommending that businesses give ten percent of their equity. Uh, to workers and government. Um, yeah. How are you responding to these and how are you engaging with Labour yeah. on them? Well, it was interesting. I mean, I was uh, with Don John McDonnell at the Labour Party conference where he made that announcement yeah. of um, basically a 10% share yeah. confiscation uh, proposal. Uh, and um, uh, we responded extremely strongly. Uh, I, I responded to, 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 to his face extremely strongly. Um, I mean, not least because they hadn't had any conversations with business at all, so it was full of holes. So, for example, domestic companies would have to give up 10% of share capital and foreign-owned subsidiaries wouldn't. You know, going back to the trade deficit, what's a bigger, a, a, a bigger driver of that? Than that? Uh, and it, it, what I would say what was very interesting is that um, uh, I said to him, listen, we understand the questions you're asking. So uh, you want to raise employee engagement, you want to raise the stake that uh, the working people of this country have in um, our economy. And we get that and we support that. Can we come and talk to you about better ways of doing it? So actually, we've got a conversation going on now with the shadow front bench, uh, uh, Labour shadow front, front bench, about other ideas for doing this. 
So we know that 85% of companies already have share ownership schemes. Let's mm -hmm. find ways of turbocharging them. We back you in the, uh, uh, in the problem you're trying to fix, but don't do something stupid that is going to damage the investability of our economy just at a time when we have question marks over our heads anyway. And actually the reaction was positive. So, um, listen, I think we are on... And, and just to be clear, you would call that particular proposal of uh, forcing companies to give 10% of their equity away stupid? Um, what we know is that the day after that proposal was announced, it was debated in at least uh, four international boardrooms that we know around the world. And they were putting in place plans to move headquarters were it to happen. Uh, so I would. Uh, uh, and, uh, and I think... I, I think that is recognised, actually. Now, there are other areas where we have looked Labour in the eye and said, will you engage in a conversation with us? And they have said, no, we won't. So, um, for example, the nationalisation, renationalisation of utilities, that is a hell-bent set course. Um, and we are deeply concerned about that. So um, there's no kind of um, uh, rose-tinted spectacles view of, we have to build this relationship Mm. Uh, uh, this may be a party of government. And again, I go back to the fact that uh, I think business has to work with all sh shades and hues um, of, of government. The, the thing I think that is, um, and I think we also have to accept that this Labour government, this Labour party, is reflecting deep-held concerns in the public. It, it is, it, these are really deep-held concerns about inequality, about unfairness, um, about poor service in public services, about lack of trust. And if we don't find ways of responding to those, mm. they will be we will be regulated in, in ways that are actually bad for investment and bad for jobs in the long run. So I think we have to lean into this in, a, in, a, in an intelligent and open-minded way, um, but also hitting out things that are stupid. Um, so, for example, on nationalisation, uh, we have... We are engaging with them on just, again, other ways of improving service levels and trust in the nationalised mm. industries. Um, because, again, the investability of our country is at stake. One of the biggest problems with the nationalisation proposals is that John McDonnell has said that the price will be determined by Parliament, not by the market. I mean, again, that, is, that starts making us sound like a banana republic. I mean, that's expropriation. And these are the areas where I think it is worth having, I hate to use the word red lines, but you know, I think there have to be some. Because when I, go, uh, when I travel abroad, I was in Tokyo for the B20 meeting three weeks ago, which is the prelude to the G20. I was talking to a lot of peer investors and businesses about how they see the UK at the moment. And there is still a willing suspension of disbelief about how, because people see the UK as open, tolerant, business friendly. We are doing a very good job of undermining that at the moment. And the, the idea that we would do things that make us look as though we will expropriate private capital, that we will um, take money away from shareholders with no recompense, are just things we have to not do. So um, that's the dialogue problem. Mm. I'm not saying it's easy, mm. but I see Jer Jeremy Corbyn on a quarterly basis, mm. John McDonnell more often than that. We spend about 30% of our time at the moment building these relationships. And I, I think we, it, it, it's, it's incredibly important that we do that. Mm. And that's obviously one powerful way uh, that business has of making its views known. The back of the CBI, you go and talk to Jeremy Corbyn and John, John McDonnell. What other ways do businesses mm. have? I, I, one of the things we... We spend a lot of time talking about here. Uh, we notice, uh, indeed, uh, is that uh, demonstrations are becoming um, 
an ever more popular way of people yes. expressing their voice. They, they often go past um, the IFG. Um, not with IFG people attending, I have to say. Um, and just the sense of uh, that the public, uh, you know, is, is finding ways and, uh, yeah. uh, to make um, people making their voices known very directly to, to MPs. And obviously, there's a yeah. flood of social media going into MPs. Yeah. Business, they have you in your dialogue yeah. with, with Jeremy Corbyn. They can say things. But yeah. how are they responding to this need to get their views across in a very changed environment of political yeah. communication? Yeah, yeah. I, I, have, I, think, I, think, I think it's a, it, it's a great question. And the, I think businesses themselves are um, uh, feeding it from their employees and from um, it, it, all the time, every day, there is, there are, there is a, you know, did your intern have a good experience? Um, what does Glassdoor say about your business? Um, the kind of feedback, and it's, mm. I think it's extremely powerful and extremely helpful. And what you are now seeing, I think, is many businesses responding to that by being much clearer about purpose, much more transparent, because you have to be, particularly the millennial generation, they, they see things very differently. Um, and I think it was fantastic to see school children out on the streets mm. about climate mm. change. Uh, uh, you know, I got pushed on it quite hard. What does this do for kind of, you know, teaching and learning science and all of that? But actually, in terms of what employers want, they really want, you know, children, young people who are going to stand up, be counted, um, speak out, speak up. So. Um, I think this is powerful. In terms of how business communicates, I mean, what's been very interesting, um, we've had a lot of challenge um, from uh, uh, MPs saying, can't you talk to more MPs? Can't your businesses get in and meet? And actually, one of the challenges is, if you're an MP, there's such a cacophony coming in of voices the whole time. Yeah. You know, one MP showed me that they have, you know, 400 emails, tweets, and texts a day um, from, you know, second referendum, no deal, do this, do that. So. Um, I have to say, I actually think that this is um, uh, uh, that we have to gather almost movements. Uh, so business yeah. needs to, have, as everybody else is, you know, movements around, for example, the contribution that business can make to preparing young people for the opportunities of the next generation, skill building. It's going to be much more about getting waves of thinking coming through social media that I think can change can change minds. Yeah. Let me ask you one uh, thing, uh, finally, picking up on this theme of how government deals with the private sector. We've done a lot of work here and are doing have really quite a big programme on, uh, on just that, um, with a lot of work on outsourcing and procurement, um, and obviously yeah. incidents like Carillion and Interserve getting into trouble and probation mm. endlessly give us, give mm. us cause to yeah. write about this. Yeah. Um, but we are digging deeper behind that into you know the conditions in which this works and doesn't work yeah. well and how how government um, handles it and we're obviously talking about a 30 40 year experiment yeah, yeah, yeah. in yeah. in government handing over more yeah. more things to the private sector and yet it's hard to get deeply into these relationships um, without seeing that while some of them work very well yeah. uh, as as um, finally some of the London um, transport and tube ones did yeah. after a bad start but but many Many don't, and we run into pockets in, of government, I would say, where the understanding of business is, is, is poor, yeah. and the understanding of the private sector, of, of the importance of cash flow, of this kind of thing. What is, what, what is your take mm. on this? We've really had a 30, 40 year you know, 
project of government trying to work much more actively with business to deliver the things that government wants to deliver to the public. And, and yet we end and up it's with... Been mixed. Yeah. And it's been a mixed experience. Yeah. I, I think that we have to recognise it's been a mixed experience. Uh, and, I mean, there are good examples. Mm. Uh, uh, and, that, you know, there are some on the doorstep. Um, but there have been too many bad ones. And the trouble with every bad one, you know, every, um, you know, failed hospital exper exper experience or failed IT project um, just sets the whole relationship back, mm. uh, uh, you know, a very long way. Um, so, um, and yet, what we know is that for government to transform, um, A, it needs private sector money, and B, actually, it needs private sector innovation. And so I think that there's, there's, we've got to reboot it. Uh, and uh, with everybody, I think, putting their hand up and saying things haven't gone right on both sides. So if I had to say in terms of the, the private sector side, God, I mean, I think that there's probably been um, too much of a keenness to take on projects that probably weren't the right ones. Um, on the government side, uh, cost has been everything uh, and uh, quality hasn't necessarily been high up, uh, up on, on the list. But if we are going to completely renew our transport infrastructure, we are going to have state-of-the-art hospitals, we are going to try and be um, you know, an incredibly modern, successful uh, economy um, in this new era, we've got to, keep, mm. we've got to get this right. So um, we've been part uh, of uh, working with Cabinet Office to try and, I think, almost put blame on one side. There is so much finger-pointing that goes on. Mm. Uh, and I think one of the problems that we see is the whole narrative coming off, off the back of Carillion is so incredibly negative. Mm. Um, you know, you look at Interserve, you look at Mighty, that the whole sector is in trouble. Mm. We're going to end up with, um, with uh, the sector withdrawing from, mm. from public sector, and I think we will be worse, worse off as a mm. result. So um, we need a reset uh, that is about quality, it's not always about cost, and the private sector itself, I think, needs to be doing things differently, much more concerned with trust and standards and, and, um, and transparency than it has in the past. Thanks for that. Let's go to some questions. And if there's anyone next door who wants to ask a question, please stick your head round. Let's go here to, uh, on the edge first. Uh, James Kidner from Improbable. We're a technology startup. Um, <coughs> fascinating discussion. And clearly telling a story that is an unhappy story of a rift right down the middle of the nation. Um, you talk as the voice of business. Can you give us some encouragement that within some businesses, this fracture between the sort of Brexit angry and the Brexit desperate has been bridged at all? Are there any lessons that the wider public can learn from business models here? Um, well, the, I mean, it is uh, the whole de Brexit fracturing, I think, has been desperate for the public and it's been desperate for business. Uh, and um, in terms of what business I think, I, I think there are actually many business leaders who would stand back from this and they would say, how would they have dealt with this problem of having um, very seriously competing views? And I think one of the things that they would do is they would seek to build consensus. Uh, and um, that kind of frustration <coughs> that we all feel um, that we have an adversarial 
party system that doesn't seem to be able to reach across boundaries. I mean, I think it is, it is absolutely fascinating that if you look at the, uh, the Prime Minister's deal and what it says about customs, it's not actually that far from being a, a, you know, a customs union. It's really not. And what we've got almost is a, um, is a system that doesn't allow compromise. It's not that it doesn't foster it, it actually prevents it. And I think there are European countries looking, I think, aghast at, at the fact we aren't, aren't able to do that. So I think what, what, what you would learn from, from, from business, and you know, I, I'm not holding business up as having a lot of the answers here, but um, you would have, I think, a system, you know, something set up within a company that said, we're going to bring people together, we're going to work it through, we're going to have a process, um, uh, and, and, and come out the other, the other side. I mean, I look at some of the battles you do have within companies, for example, between you know, old banking and digital banking. I mean, those can be wars within, uh, within, within, within companies. And the best businesses, and I think some of our big banks are actually getting to grips with this, they are sorting out a compromise and they're sorting out a, a, a transition. So yeah, our, our huge hope off the back of this sort of reprieve that we've got, a six month reprieve, is that it's used to set up a process. And it's not just you know um, people locked in a room on their own, uh, which we've seen in the last few days. I mean, I think that's a good start. And from what we see, it is in good faith. But why not have a, you know, a three to four month process now that actually properly brings civic society, and it could bring the TUC, and it could bring us in, it could, it could be cross-party, and it could ask the question, what kind of Brexit do we want? Uh, we should have done it two years ago. Why don't we do it now? Um, we personally might have liked a slightly longer extension to enable that to happen, but actually, this focuses minds. So I think, James, that will be the lesson from business. It's how you create compromise um, in a system that doesn't naturally deliver it. Thanks, one here, please. Thank you, Carolyn. Christina Yanzhong from QS. You know, our UK university play a very vital role in our knowledge transfer and our impact globally. But you know, uh, previously the immigration policy is not that friendly and we are losing out massively. But uh, now with Brexit, a lot of European students and staff are quite concerned about their futures. So what do you think we might be able to do, you know, to try to ensure our global position, our research and knowledge transfer? Great question, thank you. Um, it, it, it's an absolutely great question. And, and going back to, you know, if you're, if you're a Martian looking down at the UK or you're sitting in Tokyo looking at the, at the UK, what are we good at? One of the things we are absolutely fantastic at is our higher education. And our universities are world class. We've got four in the top 10 globally. Um, how amazing that is. Um, and yet, we seem to be in this, in this um, in the situation at the moment where we are undermining them from within. Uh, and a combination of our immigration policy and various kind of attacks on, on our universities are, I think, deeply, uh, deeply damaging. Um, at the CBI, we've been expanding our university membership. We have most uh, British universities are now members of the CBI. And we are absolutely thrilled about that because we, we see universities as being central to industrial strategy. Um, uh, universities are also businesses, they are competing on a world stage, uh, and we just need to have a much stronger cherishing and, um, uh, and, uh, and support for our universities. Having said that, universities also do need to change, um, and there is an adaptation we need to how we prepare young people for the future. Um, but that's a conversation that we, we, can, we can have. So um, out of all of this, again, you know, thinking longer term, Brexit, 
um, must be sorted so we can have this conversation about where our strengths lie and what, what kind of economy we want, want to be. Knowledge-based, universities at our heart, um, great science base, advanced manufacturing, uh, outstanding, and our services base is second to none. So how we build these strengths must be you know, the, next, the national conversation we have, not Brexit. Okay, um, right over here. Karen, thank you very much for a very uh, compelling and persuasive overview, uh, John Burt, uh, House of Lords. Is not uh, our root problem that we no longer have any party of business? We have confiscation um, uh, at one end and expletives um, at the other. Um, arithmetic has not persuaded those who have a true religious fervor. Is not the question how we can, how you in particular, can win over uh, the centre ground? Uh, John, it, John, it's such a great question, and it, it um, I think it, it is the, absolutely the right one. Um, it, it was, uh, I think, a, a real wake-up call going into the last election when there was no pro-business manifesto on the table from any party. Um, and uh, many people have been in the CBI much longer than, than I have, said this has never happened before. Mm. Uh, and why is that? Um, uh, I think I put it down to the fact that we have had two decades of totally flat productivity growth and people just have not got better off. They have not got better off. Uh, and um, it's not just a, a UK phenomenon, it's a Western uh, democratic phenomenon. Um, uh, the rising boats have not happened. Uh, and unless we can address that, unless we can... Uh, and so, coming, so along with that, we have had just a rising sense of unfairness. Um, inequality has risen. It's regional, it's social, uh, it's ethnic, it's gender, and they have risen to the top of the pile. And unless we as business address those fundamental issues, politics is just a manifestation of those. And one of the things that um, we have been uh, doing at, at the CBI is uh, spearheading a campaign that we called Everyone's Business, which is absolutely about the role that business has to play in addressing uh, these issues of inequality and low productivity. Uh, and it's why I go back to, you know, Bronwyn, your question about you know, so many of the things we see are symptoms. So our trade imbalances are symptoms. So many things are symptoms. The fundamental causes are we do not have enough high-value well-paid jobs in our country, and we particularly don't have enough of them in the north of England and some of our deindustrialized cities. Um, and yet, what I would also say is we do have some fantastic examples of where we see that kind of regeneration happening. I don't know if many of you have been to Hull recently. It's an extraordinary story of success uh, on the back of being a city of culture and, um, and, and creative companies going there. Dundee, on the back of the oil crisis, um, uh, now regenerating with, with tech companies. Manchester, um, similarly, the centre of Manchester, Cardiff, Belfast. We do have great stories that are being led by business investment and creating the kind of jobs that we want to see. We just don't have enough of it. We don't have enough of it. And you know, if there is one thing 
that we have to do coming out of this mess that we're in. We have to go back to the causes of, of, of Brexit, the causes of the lack of political support for business, and we have to address them. And I have to say, I think a lot of the responsibility sits with business itself. It really does. We can't be sitting here blaming, blaming politicians, blaming the public, blaming... This is about what we can do to ensure that um, we create opportunities for people in all parts of the country. It's about how we recruit. Um, the opportunities that we give to people in our organisations, how we train, how we reskill. And in my view, this is about a new partnership that we need between business and government, one that, like we've never seen before. Um, and I, I think that that is the, um, the opportunity that we've got. And frankly, you know, that would be the conversation I would have with Boris Johnson. That is the conversation I want to have with Jeremy Corbyn. Any of them who get in, this is the only way. We have to grow our way out of this. It is the only answer. And I do think that we have solutions to a lot of problems um, as a business community. Uh, we, aren't, we, we, we do create some of the problems, but we have more. And I think that is the, it, it's not overnight, John, but I think it's where uh, I want the CBI to be um, if we can just get beyond this, this, this crisis. It is, it is quite a challenge that John has put down, absolutely rightly, though, um, you know, that after, you know, 30, 40 years with, uh, right, a big financial crisis and everything, mm. but 30, 40 years of, um, uh, of otherwise sustained growth, that public scepticism about business and its ability to deliver growth is so great. Um, Anyway, it, 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 it is, and I think there is something else, actually, Bron, if yeah. I could just say. I was on the, the board of the Financial Services Authority after the crash, and I think there is still tremendous anger yes. that no one yes. was held to account. Yes. And um, I think we can't underestimate that. Yes, I was, I was going to say, uh, anyway, we come on to how much 2008 has to blame yeah, for the absolutely. public mood at the moment, but I think that, that is absolutely mm -hmm. right. Um, in, the, in the back here, we've, we've got good time. I should manage to get at least everyone who's got their hands yeah. up. Hi, um, uh, James Dinsdale, DIT. Um, thanks very much, Carolyn, for a great mm -hmm. presentation. Uh, you kind of touched on it just then, but um, uh, the room may be aghast, but I'd actually I'd love to talk about something other than Brexit for like two minutes. Um, <laughs> So uh, gender, pay gap, gender pay gap figures came yeah. out last week. Um, so uh, last year, I think it was 9.7%. Yeah. Um, it felt like this year was quite a big year culturally, yeah. I would say, for like women and feminism, yeah. uh, with like the kind of aftermath of the Me Too movement. Yeah. Uh, the richest young entrepreneur in the world is a woman. Yeah. And yet this year, um, the figures have come out and we've managed to get it down 0.1%. Um, I'd be really curious to know yeah. what you think about that gap. I know yeah. there's a lot of data in there and it means a lot of different things, yeah. but I'd be really interested to know what you think about it. and. Assuming that you aren't happy with it, I'd be really interested to understand what you think businesses, the economy, and the government as well, and yeah. the role that they can play in changing that gap. Yeah, uh, absolutely great question. And, and it's part of all of this. You know, gender unfairness is part of what we're, we're talking about. So first of all, I've, I've, I said on the record saying, I wish we'd come up with the idea of gender pay gap reporting. I'd say, CBI, we're hugely supportive of it. Um, what you can measure, you can change. And we are coming out very, very strongly in favor of ethnicity pay gap reporting, uh, just to say that. So um, in terms of where um, things have gone over the last year, um, 9.7, it's too high. It is just too high. I think everybody knows now that it's mostly, there are ex isolated exceptions, most of this has got nothing to do with equal pay for equal jobs. This is about the kind of roles that women take in our businesses. And again, I think business holds a lot of the 
keys to changing that. And I've been campaigning it since the day I got to the CBI for some of those things. Um, a lot of it has to do with how you recruit, um, how you evaluate, uh, um, hugely how you welcome women back after maternity leave. We don't get that right. Um, we don't recognize um, the challenges of, of what that feels like. I've had three children. I know what that feels like. Uh, uh, so that's all part of it. The one thing I would say just about this year's results, and I think this is a re I, I don't want to sound like, uh, uh, like, like an apologist, but I'm going to say one thing. Um, it is very early days. So um, I, I, we, we, we've surveyed this year, 93% of our members have taken action to address their gender pay gap. Um, it is going to take time. And I would hope to see that really start moving in the next couple of years. I do go back to women on boards. You remember the whole kind of objective to get to 25% women on I just dug those numbers out the other day. Um, they moved from 12% to 26% over five years. The first two years, they didn't budge at all because the mm. actions were being taken. And there's a lag, and it takes time. So all I would say is um, we need to keep the pressure on. I think that there's a lot of action going on. Um, what the pay gap numbers have done is create competition. Uh, and, um, and what we also know is 80% of women looking for jobs look at the gender pay gap of the company they might join before they uh, apply. You know, that's how you get change. So I'm an optimist. I wish it was lower, but give it a bit more time. Thanks very much. Over, over here. Yep. Thank you. Joe Dilger, Data Protection Officer for University of Winchester. My question is related to education again, yeah. um, with the Department for Education announcing the sites of the new 12 institutes of technology. Yeah. Do you and the CPI welcome those institutes of technology and the role they should play in closing the digital skills gap? Um, hugely. I, I, I live in Winchester, you know, great university. I did wonder uh, if you were going uh, to say no. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, no, no, um, absolutely. Um, we have a, um, a massive challenge in digital skills training. Um, uh, and actually, there's a big gender issue, actually, uh, which we need to, to fix. Um, but unless we have concerted um, strategic action, then we won't get anywhere. And again, I think one of the things that it's almost a general point I would make about our um, industrial strategy at the moment is that we're doing a lot of the right things, but we're not doing them big enough or bold enough. And I think digital skills training is an example of that. We have about, I think at last count, about 150 different initiatives to build digital skills. If you are a business or if you are an ordinary person, it's incredibly confusing. So I think one of the challenges I would put back to the, to the new institutes is how you can be um, uh, true conveners in your local region and make it simple for people to be able to find that pathway into training. Um, I think it, all the research we have shows that it needs to be boot camp, quick, smart uh, training, um, how you reach people who you might not, not otherwise reach and help to close some of the inequality gaps that we're talking about. But huge supporters, but think big, I think, and think simple. Thanks. Here on the other. Thank you. Uh, Joe Grice, uh, actually, you mentioned quite a lot of the points I was going to make in your reply to John Burt, but it does seem to me that productivity is pretty central to the story, both politically and economically. And you said, uh, Bronwyn, that actually we had 40 years uh, of what's happened over the last decade is not uh, typical of the last 40 yeah. years. It's not typical of the last 160 years, mm -hmm. according to the McKinsey work. So it really is this period of sustained lack of productivity right. growth, lack of living standards really is uh, pretty special. 
but my question then is, um, you talk about the national conversation, this ought to be the national conversation, and that seems right to me when we get through Brexit, but what would it look like? Uh, and the government does have a productivity plan, it looks pretty tired and pretty um, uh, stereotyped, but how would that agenda best be taken forward in a more kind of um, productive way, given that actually the last 12 years has shown very few results? So, um, I, I, again, I think that is a, a, a very good question because we have got to do things differently. Um, one of the things that I don't think, as, as the UK, we've been very good at industrial strategy. In fact, we really haven't. We have, over the last sort of 50 years, we've had them, torn them up, new, new, new government comes in, tears it up, and actually uh, business today is looking at the modern industrial strategy created by the Prime Minister with kind of, you know, how long is this going to last? Uh, and I wonder if there isn't just something quite big that we're learning from the Brexit process, which is that... Um, it's not just Brexit where we need a collaboration cross-party. It's actually our national strategy uh, uh, as a country where we need to be doing things differently. Um, I was looking at our skills policy the other day, and um, you know, there's a lot of finger-pointing that goes on there. Why haven't we got the skills base? And I looked at the number of changes that have been in skills policy over the last 30 years. There have been 29. There have been one a year. Um, and you wonder why businesses are confused and they don't get behind things. and um, And... Why don't we start a completely different kind of national conversation over the autumn? Um, why doesn't it uh, become a cross-party uh, uh, question about what kind of Britain we want to be um, that uh, does involve uh, many different parties? I mean, I think you could, you could begin to, 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 to list them, but um, I think you would want to involve, for example, regional mayors who I think have been very powerful in speaking up for their region in an apolitical way. Um, you could involve the regional mayors, you could involve the Trade Union Congress, you could involve us, you could involve the Federation of Small Business, you could involve the Archbishop of Canterbury. You know, you could, you could go really broad and ask those questions about what does it take to have those big, bold moves around skills, around infrastructure. I mean, our infrastructure is absolutely falling apart. And yet, we don't have any means of attracting private sector investment at scale. You know, we've abolished PFI, basically, there is nothing in its place. How do we create something new that has public trust? So, I would, that's how I would do it. I would find a way of creating a new kind of conversation that has longevity and that you get political parties on both sides to say that is the industrial strategy for the next 20 years that we're going to sign up to um, and stop this business of uh, uh, tearing policy up uh, every five years, which I think has been so disruptive. We have very good charts on just how many industrial policies, mm, yeah. uh, further education policies, and our regional policies mm. they've been on the past 40 years. Um, uh, here, and any last bids for questions because we're coming to the end. Right, I'm going to take all these three at once. Um, sounded a bit tiggerish to me what you just said. Um, but my question is about the media, which you haven't mentioned at all. Yeah. And I wonder whether the CBI thinks that the media is giving <coughs> business a fair shout mm, mm. Uh, and whether there's more that could be done uh, in that area. Thank you. Would you like to say your name for the record? Uh, Adelbis. Okay. Thanks. Did you mean tiggerish in the cartoon character or in the new independent? Party. You're independent. There is something. Just, to be, just, just to be clear, um, actually, we've got time to get all three in, so let's take them one at a time. All Great. Right. Um, uh, I got very frustrated with the media during the Brexit campaign. 
um, because this kind of sense of there having to be you know, one lead voice, one remain voice, whereas actually what we know from every business survey is that 75% of businesses were in favour of, uh, of remain. Now that's water under the bridge, but I think there is something really important here about how business is reported. Um, uh, and uh, actually I saw Kamal Ahmed from the BBC yesterday to have exactly this, this conversation. Um, the, the, if we're going to have this kind of conversation about what kind of country we want to be and the role that business is going to play in it, I do think we need a different kind of reporting. Um, we need to be talking about the skills for the next generation, the, the good stuff as well as the bad stuff. Um, that said, I've been on the other side of the BBC for a long time. We have to make it interesting. You know, we have to make it interesting. We have to be talking about real people and real lives. And one of the things I'm, I'm just very struck by is that what's something that unites us all? Something that unites us all is that we care about the next generation, um, either you know, as nieces, as children, as grandchildren, you know, as neighbours. And um, if we could have that conversation about the role that business can play in creating opportunities for the next generation, I think that unites everybody. And, um, and if the, I would really hope that the media would play a really big part in that and get behind it. Because otherwise, every time we have a negative, every time there's a Carillion, every time there's a, um, uh, you know, there's a bad story, then we just get set back miles. So the onus is on us, I think, to be interesting, to have the great stories and to talk about real people and real lives. There'll be a long debate packed into that, whether the media is it, sees it as its job to get behind anything. Um, let's not have that debate now. <coughs> Electra, House of Commons. Hi. Um, to what extent is the CBI and business more widely thinking about or planning priorities for phase two future relationship yeah, negotiations yeah. with the EU? Yeah. And how do you yeah. envisage the relationship between business and government during that negotiations should or could work for the benefit of that's such a great question, because if I hadn't talked about this, I'd have walked out and uh, regretted it, uh, because uh, it's hugely important. And, and I think that one of the things we're all struck by is it could actually happen any day. Um, I mean, that may be wishful thinking, but I, I don't think so, that we could find ourselves very quickly into phase two, and it has to be completely different from phase one. Um, and we've been doing a lot of thinking about this. Uh, and, um, and the trouble is, it will be a very quick mindset change. So we've all been in that kind of um, controversy, conflict, and suddenly we are across the table uh, from the European Union uh, with the biggest trade negotiation in the UK's history. And are we ready? Um, we, we have... Um, we have set out some quite big thoughts for government that, uh, that, that are, are with them now. We are members of this new strategic trade advisory group, and so we have a locus here. But the very, very first thing we need to do um, in those first few weeks is we need to set a strategic framework for what we want as a country from those negotiations. We didn't do it at the beginning of phase one. Um, we instead had the red lines. We didn't set out the um, strategic objectives for what we want um, in terms of which sectors, um, uh, you know, the importance of services, for example. Services have been horribly neglected uh, in phase one, partly because of the huge importance of the Irish border, which we don't belittle for a minute, but it has meant that services has taken second stage. So we need to spend uh, you know, a good few weeks setting out our strategic priorities. Then there needs to be real nitty-gritty engagement between business and government. 
in real time. It will require non-disclosure um, agreements signed. Um, there have to be phone numbers of experts in the hands of officials so that they can get them uh, very quickly. And then the final phase is implementation. Um, we've never done this before, but what we do know is how Canada, Australia, and New Zealand do, do it. And we've been lifting lots of leaves from their playbook. Um, we have been taking them into government. Um, we have to all be ready for it the day it happens, and it could be very, very soon. Um, one of the things I think I would say is that I th we think that the civil service has actually risen in the circumstances really well in terms of business engagement with us, and particularly in the preparation for no deal planning. So some of these muscles are there, but they've been uncomfortable about how much they can share with business. That trust hasn't been there. We need to find a way of creating that trust. Other countries do it, the EU will have it, and we need to create it, but we'll certainly be there on the other side to make it work. Thanks. I think we have reached the end both of time uh, and, 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 of, and of questions. Was, sorry, was there one more down here? No. Would you like, you, you do have one minute in which you can squeeze in a question. Both of you. Thank you. Uh, Anita Ponwani, Independent Risk Advisor. In terms of this agenda and strategy, where do you see uh, British business overseas in terms of the new partners we need to be trading with, particularly in respect of modern slavery and supply chain transparency and protecting workers' rights in other developing countries? Yeah. Um, I mean, we, um, we are um, very ambitious about the UK's uh, role around the world. Uh, and um, for example, our role in, in, in Belt and Road uh, uh, and our, our, role, our role in India. I mean, I think that we have, again, your whole Martian view back in the UK, we are famous for our great corporate governance, uh, rule of law, um, and our contribution on the global stage. I think we can carry on doing that. So um, we should, but we need to have, get back out there with confidence. Uh, and I think that's what the next stage is. It's about renewing our confidence to take those, those values and those ways of doing business around the world. We think we, we being the UK or the CBI? We being the UK. The, the UK. Uh, you want us to have a big role in Belt and Road or you don't? Um, I do, actually. Okay. Uh, I do. I mean, uh, with, with caveats. Um, um, but the idea that the UK, with all of our strengths in design and build and engineering, would not play a, ro a role in the biggest infrastructure project of our generation would just be a missed opportunity for our country. We need to find the right way of doing it. Um, and I'm not here advocating we follow Italy at this point in terms of endorsement, but I am advocating, um, as our businesses are doing, that we um, engage, we understand the opportunities, and we compete where, where we can. Okay, on that note, thank you all for great questions. Thank you for coming, and join me in thanking Carolyn Fairburn. <laughs> <laughs>